It's a quick 14 verses. Paul ends his letter this way. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren... Farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We come to the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He concludes the letter with an explanation of his coming in verses 1 through 10. And some closing words in verses 11 through 13. Paul encourages the Christians to be ready for that visit in verses 1 through 4. To be sure that you're saved in verses 5 through 7. To be obedient to God's word in verses 8 and 9 and 10. To be mature in your faith in verses 11, 12, 13 and 14. Paul is planning a trip to Corinth. He gives some final admonitions. Paul desires to correct the problems. He wants the visit to be purposeful and pleasant and not punitive. Paul's desire is to preach and not to punish. Paul's desire is to build and not tear down. So what is it that Paul really wants from the church at Corinth? He wants their confession and profession to match their appearance in the very real world in which they live. 
Paul understands that the world in which we live is watching us. That the world in which we live is wondering whether or not the things that we say about God and the things we say about Jesus and the things we say about life and love and forgiveness and hope are really, really true. And so the urgent need for a course correction begins in verses 1 through 4. It's a little bit difficult, but let's see if we can make our way through this. In verse 1, Paul writes, This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Right from the start, Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Word for word. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Why does he do this? Again, some Bible teachers suggest that this isn't Paul's third visit, but rather Paul's third attempt to visit for the second time. He keeps trying to go. He's delayed. He tries again. He's delayed. He once again tries, and it looks like he's going to make it. Now, if if this is the case, then I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps the cases of sin in the church would come under investigation, and such investigations would include a biblical fact-finding thing in this sense. Paul is going, remember there are issues that he struggled with, and he's basically saying, look, a lot of things have been said, but in order for us to try to understand what's true, what's real, and what's right, we're going to make sure that we subscribe to the biblical principle of confirming every fact in the mouth or two or three witnesses. It might mean that. It may mean something else. This will be the third time I'm coming to you or attempting to come to you. And so when he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, the other possible meaning of this particular passage might be, I've come to you, with, to you once with a message. I've come to you twice with a message. And now I'm going to come to you a third time with the same message so that all of the facts that I've already explained will be established. It may be that Paul quotes Deuteronomy 19.15 that the word of his apostolic testimony and the message of Jesus will be firmly established. When he says in verse 2, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before. This particular passage sounds strangely reminiscent of his first letter in chapter 1, verse 5 in the book of Corinthians where in chapter 1, verse 5, he basically says that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all testimony. He writes about the divisions of the church. And basically, he is going to address the issue of the sinful divisions and, and the carnal state and the sinful circumstances that are taking place in Corinth. And so when he says, I've told you before, I think in 1 Corinthians, and foretell as if I were present the second time. In other words, I'm speaking in such a way, 
I'm telling you, I'm writing to you what I would say to your face, even though right now I'm not with you. He's in effect saying that Paul will deal severely with those who sin and he will not suffer those who allow sin. And so in this particular instance, he's basically saying, look, the truth is that there's a real difficult problem and we have to deal with it. And this isn't a popular message, by the way. When there's sin in in people's lives, when there's sin in your family, when there's sin in your church, when there's sin in your community, when there's sin in the nation... Most people are reluctant to actually confess their sin, repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and then use the resources that are available to them in Christ. Paul is prepared to exercise all his apostolic authority and power to bring these matters to a Christ-honoring conclusion. Now, one of the things that I need you to note Throughout all of this, Paul will not use fear, threat, or intimidation. Do you know what Paul is actually using? Logic, reason, persuasion, and love. And you're going to see that unfold more and more as we continue in the text. So Paul writes in verse 3, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Remember why he's writing that in verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. Why are they seeking a proof? Remember, they doubt his apostolic ministry. They question whether or not he is a true apostle. They're basically saying, you claim to have a message from Jesus. You claim to be speaking for Jesus. You claim that the words that you say are the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the the ministry of Jesus. Prove it. The critic, the skeptic is asking for proof. Some evidence that Christ was in fact speaking through Paul. Now I'm going to suggest to you that verse 3 and verse 4 Five are related to one another. And that verse 4 is a parenthetical note. In verse 3, when Paul says, Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, and then he appeals to verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith, he is going to point to the fact that their salvation is proof positive that God had in fact used Paul in their life and in their circumstances. But let's look at the parenthetical note just for a moment. For he says, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Paul is pointing to a gospel principle. Weakness produces strength. In what way? For though he, that's Jesus, was crucified in weakness. I want you to just think about what Paul is saying. We sang about it at the wondrous cross. We talked about the cross of Calvary. Imagine that there's someone in this room or listening 
online or, or, or on tape or some way. They're listening and they're thinking, this sounds like crazy talk. What kind of weird, crazy people are these? They're singing about a cross. They're, they're singing about an instrument of torture and death. They're speaking of this instrument of torture and death as if it's something really wonderful. And you go, yeah, it is. How could you say such a thing? How could you say such an absurd thing that an instrument of death could be a wonderful thing or a wondrous thing? And, and why would we say such a, what seems like a ridiculous thing to say? Because God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself as a sacrificial substitute who would be the mechanism where every sin could be forgiven, where every hope could be realized, where every heart could be mended, where everything broken could be restored. And so, (laughs) Roy Lauren writes, the gospel possesses a power which rests in Christ. The power of Christ becomes power in the Christian. It is the power of life and death, for it speaks of Christ's dying by crucifixion and living by a resurrection. The crucifixion was in weakness, and the resurrection was in power, he writes. And so, again, the people in Paul's world and in the world of Corinth would have thought, this is crazy talk. The this the gospel is weak and foolish and vain how could something like the gospel provide power in order to change a person's life and see again they're asking the same questions that are even being asked today how is it possible that a person in time and space living 2000 years ago dying on a roman cross coming back to life how could that possibly change you How could that possibly restore your marriage? How could that possibly restore broken friendships and fellowship? How could that possibly remove guilt and the stain of sin? How could that possibly change your life? Paul's argument is that God is going to use weak things and what other people consider foolish things. He's going to take the weak things of God and the foolish things of God and demonstrate that they are more powerful than the most powerful thing that human beings have to offer. Because I want you to think about this for just a moment. Apart from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what does humanity have to offer you concerning the reality of sin and the problem of sin and the deep difficulty that is in every human heart? We'll live with it. We'll try to change. We'll try to be different. We'll try to be acceptable. The gospel has never claimed to thoroughly satisfy the human head, but it does claim to thoroughly satisfy the human heart. The gospel doesn't say, if you understand and embrace all of the theological implications of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and all of the incredible intellectual and philosophical uh, support that it's going to provide, you could spend not just one lifetime or two lifetimes or ten lifetimes thinking about it. It could 
actually, if you did a careful study, provide you with a lot of philosophical fodder. But the gospel wasn't meant to intellectually stimulate you in such a way that after you read the Bible, you go, I feel smarter all of a sudden. It's actually written in such a way that you should feel cleaner. That you should feel like you're chosen, adopted, accepted. Some people trained in philosophy might quote snippets of Seneca or passages of Plato. Some might commit to memory the arguments of Socrates or the insights of Aristotle. But even if you took every copy of the Bible in the world and burned it, if you took every single Bible on the planet Earth and found a hole and dug a hole big enough to put every Bible in the, in the world and then burn it in a volcano or get rid of it, could you recreate the Bible? By the people who know and love Jesus, if you took the thousands, then the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, and millions of people, and just say, tell me your favorite verse, tell me your favorite verse, how much of the Bible could we recreate in this room, right at this moment, if all of a sudden we said, does anybody know Genesis 1-1? Does anybody know Genesis 1-2? We go through Genesis, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we begin to consider all that the Bible has done. If you took the sum and the substance of all of humanity, and brought them together, every single person who claimed to love Jesus, and love Love God, guess what? You could recreate the Bible. Because the Word of God is powerful. In Wiersbe's outlines, he writes Had the Corinthians obeyed the Word of God, they would have spared themselves and Paul a great deal of agony. It is when Christians ignore or oppose the word of God that they bring trouble upon themselves. They bring trouble on others and they bring trouble on the church. And that is exactly right. It's not the people who know and love and obey the Bible that's creating problems. It's the people who don't know, don't love, and don't obey the Bible that are creating the problems. But Paul points out, look. Though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. In what way? Because God has changed Paul's life. Because the gospel has proven powerful. And then we continue. The pressing need for self-examination. Look what it says in verse 5. Paul writes, now again... Taking verse 3 and verse 5 together, examine yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Some in Corinth were quick to examine Paul and say, Paul. We don't think you're qualified to be an apostle. We don't think you're qualified to be a Bible teacher. We don't think you're qualified to say anything about anything in relationship to God and Jesus and our lives and our circumstances. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What is Paul asking the Corinthians to do? When Paul says, examine yourself, what is this examination? 
How are they to test themselves? Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? William MacDonald thinks that the Apostle Paul isn't telling the Corinthians to look inside of themselves for evidence of their salvation. He thinks that this would drive the young believer or the uninformed believer to know whether or not they're saved, that it's going to just create discouragement and despair. McDonald's writes, quote, We do not engage in introspection in order to know whether or not we're saved. Rather, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, and hear his promise, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Paul is not telling the Corinthians to engage in self-examination as a proof of their salvation. Rather, he's asking them to find in their own salvation a proof of his apostolic calling, the evidence that Christ was speaking to him in verse 3, there were only two possibilities. Either Jesus Christ is in them or they are reprobate. Jesus is in them or Jesus is not in them. And by the way, reprobate means spurious. And so in verse 5, when it says, examine yourselves as to see whether or not you're in the faith, test yourselves Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you? The word translated in the New King James Version, disqualified, is in other translations translated reprobate, but reprobate means spurious. It means it's a word that was used to describe metals which, when they were tested, were found not to be true. Um, Imagine you bought a gold coin and you discovered that it was only gold-plated, but it was really copper. Or it was only just gold paint. It, it, it really wasn't gold at all. It's that same kind of meaning. That when somebody passes something valuable off as, as something real and valuable. When in fact it is not real and valuable. If that's the case, Paul is in effect saying, ask yourself one question. Are you saved? It's a pretty easy question. Are you saved? The answer is yes or no. Paul is arguing, if the answer is yes, who told you about Jesus? Paul Paul did. Who first presented the gospel to him? Paul did. What was it that Paul said? Hey, guess what? There's this person named Jesus. He lived and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. Remember, they present the gospel. They, they present from the Old Testament. And then all of the thrilling stories of the New Testament about this person named Jesus, his wonderful life, his wonderful ministry, and how God from heaven sent Jesus to be the full and the final answer to all of the prophecies that were given That Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but he was also the Gentile Messiah. And then they believed him. And they asked him, hey, what what does all of this mean and what what do we need to do? Well, just like he talks about elsewhere. Uh, Believe in your heart uh, and and say with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe that God sent Jesus and you will be saved. Believe the gospel. Ask God to forgive you in Christ and God will forgive you in Christ. And then they were. They experienced redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness. And they started living their lives as if that were true. So think about it for just a moment. What is the answer? 
Is Jesus in your heart? Yes or no? And if Jesus is not in your heart, but guess what? He fully expects the answer to be, of course we're Christians. Imagine if somebody said to you, are you a Christian? Now, again, let's just look at the text just for a moment. Three times Paul uses the word yourselves. In the Greek translation, the word yourselves is placed first in the Greek text. And those of you who have any understanding of of Greek placement of words in any given text, the, the word that you're trying to emphasize, you put at the beginning of the text. And so Paul basically says, in the Greek translation, it it literally reads, you, yourselves, test. You, yourselves, prove that Jesus Christ is in you. So what is the proper place of self-examination? Who can know if Jesus is really living inside of us or not? Now, if you're like me, You grew up in a world where tests were not a good thing. When you went to school and the teacher said, pop quiz, everybody, close your notebooks, stop looking at your neighbor, I'm going to give you a test. And you go, you remember in class? Nobody likes a test. Imagine somebody says, you need to take a medical test. Or you need to take a driving test. Or you need an occupational test. Or you need a competency test. And so there are those people who are really, really reluctant to take this most important of all tests. Is Jesus inside of you? Now, I want you to think again. Here's what Paul says. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Know yourselves. Three words. Test. Prove. Recognize. I'm going to suggest to you the word test, parazo, in the original language. This is an objective test. The word was, was an objective test in, in the sense that that there's something that is related to something that is objective. It, it's external and objective. It's, it's the kind of test that fair, is fairly easy. If a person puts something in front of you and says, what is this? Is it a dog? Is it a cat? Is it, is it a tree? What is this? The objective test that I think that he's talking about is, have you established a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Again, it isn't some feeling on the inside of your heart. It isn't some test of whether or not you go to church or whether or not you read your Bible or whether or not you're a good or a bad person or whether or not you've done good or bad things. Paul is inviting you to ask and answer the question, have you ever come to a place in your life where you considered the claims of Christ And that you consciously and deliberately heard the message of hope. And that you yourself believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that you made the conscious decision to turn from your sin. Embrace his offer of hope. And experience life and love. Some of you might be hard pressed to do that and say, well I can't. 
I can't name the day or the year. I can. March 3rd, 1973. About 9 o'clock at night at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I'm 16 years old. I am hearing the gospel. I am hearing the message of hope. I am hearing a a, a sermon being preached from John chapter 11 about Lazarus coming back to life. I hear a voice inside of my heart asking the question, do you think that Jesus could save somebody like me, forgive somebody like me, make somebody like me different? And praying a prayer, a simple prayer of repentance. Jesus, will you be my Lord? Jesus, will you be my Savior? The second word, test, prove. The word prove is dokimadzo. It's translated examined. It's the kind of examination that implies competency. And so when he says, examine yourself, it's the kind of examination that says, examine yourselves in such a way that you can come to a competent conclusion about the subject that's under consideration. And then the word recognizes epigonosco. It means a full confidence and a deep knowledge. He says, in, in that sense, are you absolutely certain that Jesus lives inside of your heart. And again, I'm not talking about the experience of doubt or the experience of struggle or the experience of of faith issues or personal failure. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who lives in constant fear and constant threat and constant intimidation every single moment where they're under the scrutiny of their own conscience wondering whether or not they really know Jesus. Have you ever accepted him? Have you ever experienced personal peace and assurance of salvation? If you've never accepted him, if you've never experienced personal peace, and if you've never experienced the assurance of salvation, I think that the purpose that Paul asks the question isn't simply so that you'll come to the conclusion of whether or not you pass or fail the test. I think in the context, he assumes that the people are going to say, I'm saved. But I think that it does have a broader application for every single person who lives in every single generation. If it is true, if Jesus lives inside of you, then there should be some evidence that that's the case. Your life is different. Your thought life is different. Your attitudes and actions and goals are different. Your habits and lifestyle are different. In what way do they reflect God's love? Do they reflect God's glory? Do you think about all the time God's plans and purposes for your life? That's what I think he's saying. If Paul preached Christ... The gospel, and if they were saved as a result of hearing and understanding and accepting the gospel, Paul is in effect saying, 
How could you even for a moment entertain the idea that I'm a false apostle? When you think about what God has done in your life because of the message of the gospel. I think for us, it's something way more problematic in this sense. Paul is defending his apostolic authority in his message. But his apostolic authority and his message continue to be doubted to this very day. People will say, well, Jesus said this and Paul said that. And as if you pit Paul against Jesus as if they have two different messages or that somehow we can pit Jesus and Paul against one another and come to some sort of different conclusion. Or we ask and we answer this question, as some cultists claim, does Jesus have one message of salvation and does Paul have another message of salvation? What's the right answer? Of course not. Jesus says, come to me, believe in me, receive me. Paul says, go to Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe the story of what Jesus has done, believe what the prophecies have said about Jesus, believe that the crucifixion of Jesus was for you and that his resurrection in power is proof positive that his message is true. Have you taken the test? Have you examined yourself? Everyone needs to take the test. Why? In the hopes that it will reveal the truth. And remember what it says in John chapter 8 verse 32. You'll know the truth and the truth will. It will set you free. What's the truth about me and my relationship with Jesus? By the way. Can I take the test for you? It's impossible. Who can take the test? Only you can. Who can grade the paper? Only you can. Chuck Swindoll writes, Do you want to be free of doubt regarding your standing with God? Take the test. Do you want to be certain where you'll spend eternity? Take the test. Once that issue is settled, you'll be free to grow spiritually and mature. Satan would like nothing more than to convince you that you're saved when, you're, when you aren't. On the other hand, he'd like to make you think that you're not saved when you are. Take the test. Find out for sure. Swindoll writes, take the test and let it rest. You know what I do with people who tell me that they're struggling in this area? I encourage them to go to John chapter 5. And I ask them to read out loud John chapter 5. Verse 24, and I say to them, verse by verse, read verse 24 to me, 
Most assuredly. What does that mean? It means for certain. I say to you, who's speaking? Jesus. He who hears my word, have you heard his word? And believes in him who sent me. Do you believe that the Father has sent the Son? Has everlasting life. Does that sound like temporary life? Does that sound like probationary life? Does that sound like, well, maybe yes, maybe no life? And shall not come into judgment. What does that mean? That means experience the penalty for sin. Judgment is the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that have been committed. But is passed from death into life. And just in case I ask them. Look what it says. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. How do you define everlasting life? What do you suppose the typical definition of everlasting life is? It's living forever and ever. And I say, that's a really good way of answering it. But what if I said it's something more? In, in John 17, 3, listen to what Jesus says. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life not simply in living forever and ever. But you've heard me say this over and over again. Of loving forever and ever and being loved forever and ever. It's knowing God and knowing Jesus. And how can you live forever? Because you have a real relationship with a God who lives forever. And Jesus who lives forever. If God can cease to exist, then so can you. And if Jesus can cease to exist, so can you. I read a most remarkable bit of history this week. When the Germans occupied France, in the very first paper printed in Paris after the Nazi occupation was this column in the French paper. It it said, quote, we are going to pay for 60 years of de-Christianization, of a failing birth rate, of declining into paganism and materialism, decline into political anarchy. We are paying dearly for the errors and crimes of our great French Revolution of 1789 and 99. Providence granted us 25 years respite in which to recover ourselves. We return to our free-thinking materialistic vomit, to our popular front moral and political anarchy. We have worn out the patience of providence we have disgusted the good God himself and now when will the Lord grant us the recovery and the resurrection of France what I thought about that when I read that is they weren't willing to take the national test the national test was in order to be a great nation what do you have to do you have to love and honor and obey God What happens if you don't love, honor, and obey God? You're going to cease to be a great nation. What's going to happen to you if you cease to honor and obey God? You'll cease to be a great person. So when when we fail to take the test, we have to ask this question. What will have to happen to you 
in order for you to be willing to take the test? Has God been whispering to you or thundering to you, take the test, take the test, take the test? And look what he says in verse 6. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul affirms that he and his companions are saved. Remember this word disqualified? It actually means reprobate. But I trust that you will know that we are not reprobate. In other words, let's just be even more more fundamental in our evaluation of what the text is saying. Paul is saying, I'm saved. We're saved. We're not reprobate. He confirms that he has taken the test. Paul says, I'll take the test. Will you take the test? By the way, does Paul invite them to take the test in order to judge them? No. Why does he invite them to take the test? He invites them to take the test so they'll know the truth about themselves in Christ. And so, in verse 7, look what it says. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Proof of life. Does that mean perfection in our lives? Paul says, no. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. In what sense? That one of the proofs that you've taken the test is that now you're going to do what God would have you to do. You're going to love him and you're going to honor him and you're going to obey him. So that Paul would appear approved. Now again, think of Paul's logic. I want you to do what's right. Oh, you just want us to do what's right so that you'll look like you're a real apostle. See, you're laughing, but this is the way some people think. No, I'm not saying that at all. I want you to think about a correlation. Do students expect competency from their teacher? Let's just be blunt. Do most students expect the teacher to have a greater understanding of the subject matter than the students? That's, I think that that's right. Do children expect a certain maturity from their parents? I think that that's true. So if the teacher doesn't know as much as the student or the parent is less mature than the child, something's going to go terribly wrong. Paul is in effect saying, it's not for my sake that it's important for you to pass the test. It's important for your sake. In other words, I'm not asking you to take the test to prove what a great apostle and what a great and wonderful pastor that I am. It's so that you will know, it's so that you will know that you have a right relationship with God. He says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth. 
but for the truth. What is he in effect saying? For Paul, the truth matters. And for Paul, he is convinced that the truth will prevail. The truth matters and the truth will prevail. And again, in the context, the truth about you, the truth about your relationship and your fellowship with Jesus, the truth about whether or not you really are a Christian or if you're really not a Christian. By the way, if you really are a Christian, will the truth prevail? Yes. If you're really not a Christian, will the truth prevail? It'll be found out. It'll be exposed. Paul affirms that his apostolic ministry has to support the truth and it can't oppose the truth. And so when he says, for we can do nothing against the truth, who do you think the we is? Do you think he has a mouse in his pocket? Who do you suppose the we is? Do you think it's at least Paul and his companions, Titus? Do you think we could even safely say that when he says, for we can do nothing against the truth, he's probably talking about all the legitimate apostles. He's talking about Peter, James, and John. He's talking about all of the people who are proclaiming this gospel and who are presenting the message of hope. I think that that's what it means. Paul argues that the apostolic mission must be with a view for telling the truth. The truth about God. The truth about Jesus. The truth about the gospel. Absent selfishness. Absent any selfish motives. By the way, are there people who want to hinder the gospel? Distort the gospel? Are there people willing to twist the scripture? I think that the answer is yes. Is it possible for those who hinder the gospel, distort the truth, and twist the scripture, will they experience a kind of a temporary success? I think that that's possible. But will they ultimately succeed? I think that the answer is no. I think that ultimately the truth about the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the truth about his resurrection, the truth about his ability to come back to life and to change your life and to change my life and to keep his promises will absolutely and positively come to pass. The wicked efforts of self-serving men and women will ultimately fail and Jesus will be glorified. Remember what Paul wrote? He said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse used to beautifully illustrate this principle. He wrote, a man had a beautiful estate with magnificent trees on it, but he had one bitter enemy who said, I will cut down one of his trees and that'll hurt him. In the dark of the night, the enemy slipped over the fence and went to the most beautiful of the trees. And with saws and axes, he began to work. In the first light of the morning, he saw in the distance two men coming over the hill on horseback and recognized one of them as the owner of the estate. Hurriedly, he pushed the wedges out. He let the tree fall, but one of the branches caught him and pinned him to the ground. And it injured him so badly that he died. 
before he died, he screeched out, Well, I've cut down one of your beautiful trees. And the estate owner looked at him with pity and said, This is the architect I've brought with me. We had planned to build a house, and it was necessary to cut down one tree to make room for the house. And it's the one that you've been working on all night. Don't forget that anything the devil is working at, anything that he's cutting down, the wicked things that he's attempting to do, how he's trying to destroy your life, how he's trying to destroy your family, how he's trying to destroy your circumstances, as he's trying to destroy your job, he's trying to destroy your reputation, he's trying to cut something down, he's trying to undermine, he's trying to thwart the plan of God. But God is omniscient and all-powerful and victorious and that Satan will never, ever be able to fully and finally, effectively destroy the plan that God has for you. And so Paul prays, for we're glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Paul reveals his unselfish motives. Weakness, humiliation, difficulty, reproach. Here's what Paul is saying. My life is hard. I'm willing for it to be hard if your life is easy. My life is filled with sacrifice. It's okay if you get to have an abundance. I am willing to bear the reproach and the weakness and the humiliation and the difficulty. Does this sound like a person who wants to use fear and threats and intimidation to get his way? No. Paul prays that the way the congregation deals, I think, with sinful offenders will be complete and entire. For we're glad when we're weak and you're strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. In what way? That the divisions will end. That the criticisms will end. That the difficulties will end. That the accusations will end. That the problems will end. He says in verse 10, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. What's the purpose of Paul's letter? Being absent. He's writing a letter. I'm not there to deal with this personally. Being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness. Paul's ultimate goal, remember, he's already said twice, I want you to be complete. I want you to be complete. That's mature. It's maturation. I want you to be mature and not immature. He would rather write to them as absent in order to secure the spiritual benefits than be present and use sharpness. But it's a sharpness that's authorized by the Lord. Let me explain the word sharpness real quick. It's the adverb apodamos. It's only here in the Greek New Testament in Titus chapter 1 verse 13. Sharpness means abrupt, curt. It means severe. I think even in our culture and our society, we might come up with another word. Have you heard someone who is just downright rude? 
They were, they were rude in their bluntness. I think that this is part of it. It's a sharpness. It's a bluntness that he's talking about. So Paul is urging the Corinthians to take the necessary steps to mature. Here's the other idea. Has God given Paul the authority to exercise discipline? I think that the answer is yes. Paul is in effect saying, guess what? Why don't you deal with this problem so I don't have to? Is there hatred and there needs to be love? Has there been animosity and guilt and sin and wickedness? Has there been difficulties? Has there been sinful transgressions that have taken place? Here's my hope. That you'll deal with it. That if you've sinned, that you'll confess your sin. That you'll extend forgiveness to one another. And you'll be reconciled in every relationship that you need to be reconciled in. In that way, God can use... or Excuse me. In that way, Paul can use his God-given authority... To exercise encouragement rather than discipline. Have you ever had a child and you said, wouldn't you rather you deal with this problem so that I don't have to spank you? So I don't have to discipline you. Wouldn't it be a good idea if you would just own up to the problem, confess that it's a problem, deal with the problem, and I'll help you deal with the problem. Why do I always have to beat it out of you? (laughs) And that's part of what Paul is saying. Edification, oiko, dome. It literally means building up. Catharesis. It literally means pulling down. And so Paul basically says, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness. According to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And see, he says finally in verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. Wow, you mean it's over? Yeah, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. He says it for the third time. That means mature. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Remember when he's saying, be of good comfort. Why? I think it's a tender expression. Don't be afraid. Don't be threatened. Don't be fearful. Be of one mind, unity. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace is going to be characterized by peace. McDonald writes, the apostle now draws this rather stormy epistle to an abrupt close. Paul exhorts them. Number one, rejoice. Number two, change your ways. Number three, encourage each other. Number four, live in harmony and peace. And then in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, remember in that culture and society, Paul is asking for a pure and sincere sign of common affection. You know, some cult groups have said, dude, look what the Bible says. Greet one another (laughs) with a holy kiss. I don't think that it means what you think that it means. When he says holy, the word holy in and of itself means pure. And so Paul is asking for a pure and sincere sign of common affection. If he were living today, Paul might say, Dude, 
give me a high five with a straight face or a smile. He might say, hug each other. Or he might say, give each other a healthy and sincere handshake. Whatever it is, it, it just means figure out a way to communicate your sincere affection for one another. And then Paul gives a threefold benediction in keeping with the Trinity. May the love of the Father be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. And so he says, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He invites the Trinity to strengthen them, to comfort them, so that they will be able to rejoice, so that they'll be able to change their ways, so that they'll be able to encourage each other, so that they'll be able to live in harmony and peace because the Bible doesn't ask you to do those things apart from the supernatural empowering presence of the true and the living God. And we have finished Second Corinthians. Next week, an introduction to the book of Job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this amazing epistle. As Paul shares insight and love, as he deals with difficulty and conflict, as he understands what it means for people to criticize and question But Lord, all the while he continues to love them and minister to them. Instead of taking the high place, he takes the low place. Instead of taking the place of being served, he takes the place of service. And all the while he points people to the true and the living and the loving Jesus who saves us, who rescues us, who redeems us and reconciles us. And so again, Father, we thank you for this personal and intimate look into the heart and the ministry of a man who loved you so much and sacrificed so much in order to encourage us and build us up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.